Welcome to Main Street Mesa, where we discuss issues around building a more human, people-centered community in Mesa, Arizona, and other communities like it. I'm David Crummy. I'm Ryan Wozniak. And we're here to dive into our third podcast. Fourth. Fourth. We had an intro. I'm David Crummy. <laughs> oh, you want to start over? No, we're keeping that. <laughs> Join us. Wherever you found this, because you already found us, I don't need to tell you to go to iTunes, Stitcher. But you can tell your friends to go to iTunes, Stitcher. Or wherever you get your podcast. Today we are (laughs) on our third podcast of the book, Walkable City by Jeff Speck. We are discussing pages 36 through wherever we get to. Uh, why Johnny Can't Walk, The Obesity Bomb, Clearing the Air, American Carnage, Tense and Lonely. But first, letters. We actually have had some little uh, activity on Facebook, and so we want to recognize those who are cooperating on Facebook. And we love that you're engaged, and we also invite you to be as much part of the conversation as you want to be. Bring in your stats, bring in your research, bring in whatever interests you into the conversation and enrich it as part of the community member. Because this is not just two guys who are full-time contributors to the Main Street Mesa. This is a community that we're building. So be as much of that community as you want to be. And so please. Yeah, there had been a request for some data on the grid bike share and usage. Would love to see that if anyone... uh, can pick that up and find that or send it our way. We'd love to look at that. We also da, 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 were nominated by Smart Growth America in the top 20 finalists for most dangerous city for walking. Uh, we were number 16 in metro area. Just edging out Detroit. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Detroit. Suckers. <laughs> Riverside, Baton Rouge. We are that much better than you. Um, we're not. We're still got a while to catch up with uh, Houston, though. Yeah. Um, so good job, Phoenix, Mesa, Scottsdale, being the 16th most dangerous place to walk in America. So if you have anything else to add, if you want to join us, please join us on Facebook or on Tumblr, Tumblr, Main Street Mesa. You can send your comments to MainStreetMesa at gmail.com. That's MainStMesa at gmail.com. And for the very, very brave, and there has been no one brave, no one strong enough, no one able to bring themselves to our level, being able to record a short voice message and re- email it to us for a chance to be featured on our show. And you hear us. We're not setting a very high bar. So yeah. Come on. <laughs> it's pretty low. And that brings us to our most esteemed guest, Jewel. Jewel Montez is joining us today for this section. Jewel, why don't you introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Jewel Montez. I'm a hairstylist and community activist in downtown Mesa and just all around good neighbor. Thanks for inviting me. (laughs) Awesome. I'm so glad you're here. So that brings us to a book. Yes. Why Johnny Can't Walk. Uh, This is all about health and obesity and why everything is terrible and we're going to die. Yeah, and and we have to fix it right now. And I feel like this ties so well into our first episode, which featured your wife, Ari, and she spoke a lot about your son's uh, travesties or risks of walking to school. So here we are at Why Johnny Can't Walk, which is quite related to that discussion. So there's a lot of tie in here, a lot of overlap. Johnny does walk, though. Just it's not very safe. Yeah. yeah. Or at least our Johnny. But most Johnnies don't. Oh, you know, one of the things you talked about is just about how literally suburban sprawl is killing us. And he pulls no punches. Yeah. I don't know if he's being alarmist or not alarmist enough when you get into the stats. Lots of stats in this one. Lots of uh, research that's been done. He talks about the Richard Jackson a lot. Uh, the That um, research that was published apparently July 9th, 2004, which changed a lot of planners' perspectives on how public health intersects with the built environment, how how our cities are designed. I think that 
this is such an important document or important way to document how much risk is actually embedded in our lives in a way that isn't very well understood or that we take for granted. The thing that Dr. Jackson was talking about when he was noticing that highway in Atlanta mm -hmm. where it was two miles between traffic lights and no sidewalks, I was just in Miami and I noticed that exact same thing. I actually forced my family to turn around and we drove down the street again so I could see how long it was. It was about two miles. Yeah. And people were crossing illegally, but the only time where you can. What's your experience with this? This chapter kind of puts everything in perspective and it's kind of like, how do you want to die? Do you want to? <laughs> in our 16th most dangerous city or whatever. Um, would you like to get struck by a car or would you like to die slowly of you know, not enough oxygen and obesity and all these risks. So that definitely made me feel like we have a lot of work to do, but I'm really grateful to live in downtown Mesa where we don't have two miles because I too have been to Miami and it's awful. And there's deserts, you know, like these desert streets. That's so crazy to me. Yeah. We have them here too. We do. But, you know, like when they talk about heat stroke, you know, we mm -hmm. see so many people that are out walking in places that even if it isn't two miles to cross the street safely, and no one goes, I don't think anyone goes more than a quarter of a mile to cross the street at a intersection if they don't have to. Here in our heat summers, so many people have to walk to the bus or the light rail or ride their bikes that literally we're not tracking those numbers. And I wonder if it's higher here than in Atlanta, in, a, in hot Atlanta. Well, have you ever seen the buses pulled over with the ambulances in behind them and stuff mm. during the summer? That is real. Yeah. That happens a lot, especially with our ozone. Yeah, with the asthma. Yeah, compounding the heat, yeah. the asthma, the heart, the restricted ability to breathe. So one of the things we talked about in the last episode was sort of how much things were better in the 70s, yeah. imagining Mesa back in the 70s, and how far we've gone from that and making loss of the useful walk. Useful walk. That's a good term. And so, oh yeah, I did. Yeah, the greatest killer of young adults and children nationwide is cars. Mm -hmm. So he, he goes back to the 1970s again in this chapter, but as a comparison between how much people weighed in 1970-something versus what we weigh today. And we've all put on weight, apparently, uh, men uh, less so than women. Uh, but... Uh, significant amounts of weight and how much more likely we are to be obese, how much more likely we are to be diabetic, mm -hmm. uh, all contributing to the fact that are based on the way that our environment is designed and not allowing us that useful walk or the lifestyle choices to just be more active. And so being trapped in a car, I can relate to that because I've started off my career a 45 minute commute from where I live. And so when I look at these statistics, it doesn't make me feel very uh, uh, safe. The fact that I have a much greater chance of dying in a car than I do even from crime. Ryan, we established last episode, you walked to school when yeah. you were a kid. I walked to school when I was a kid until I moved to Phoenix. Jewel? Hands down, we walked to school. Every day? Yeah. I stopped walking to school when I moved to Arizona and started high school. My parents drove me because it was too far and it wasn't. Safe. It was like three miles, yeah. four miles. In the high school, I was a little over a mile. I either rode my bike when it was nice, and when it was really frigid, I would get a ride from parents. Yes. And then, you know, you, you turn 16, and if you're lucky enough, you got a car, and or you had a friend with a car. Luckily enough, everyone has like quads or dirt bikes. <laughs> Why Johnny can't take his quad? <laughs> yeah. So is it 50% of people walk to school in 1969 and less than 15% do now. And why not? Because it's not safe. My son walks to high school every day. He is mostly fine, but it's not a safe walk and yeah. it's a little bit more than a mile. Our little ones go to elementary school and that's two miles, but they couldn't walk. Going across Broadway, going across Maine, and going across Alma School. Mm. You know what's crazy is I drive down Horn every day and tons of kids walk to school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see. It's the barrio. I see tons of kids walking down Broadway mm -hmm. 
where it's, you know, a little four-foot sidewalk with a telephone pole smack dab in the middle, so yeah. you can't walk too, too abreast, which I think is crazy. It is. And then the whole thing about the kid walking to school and then they called the police on them. Yeah. And I was like, mm, <laughs> this is what we talk about, the nanny state. A right? sign of our times. Yes. But it does go to show that it is, it is, it literally is dangerous. Yeah. And then there's also the the culture shifts, right? By the time we get to the the end of why Johnny can't walk, there's the section that he talks about uh, how there's the anti um, crowd to this to a lot of these ideas, and they poke fun at the anti suburban snobbery that probably that we probably share that he shares that he's talking about, and that. Um, <laughs> He says is appropriately put at him, but um, I have to ask myself, who do I trust more? The doctors who have nothing to gain either way or the sprawl builders? I'm going with the doctors. Yeah. So, I mean, while we may be anti-suburban snobs in a, a certain way, like we, there's a lot of statistics that say that there's room for something else. There's room to carve out of our suburbs a place that's more walkable to get, give us the useful walk. And I don't think that any of us are trying to transform Mesa as a complete urban uh, or complete walkable city, but there should be places that people can choose to live where it's walkable. Well, I think that you're, you're absolutely correct in that downtown Mesa is was a pure walkable core when it was built we took a lot away by fixing our roads so cars could move faster but we've gone a long way to making it better today yeah so if if there are these people who are out there who are you know uh, looking at us as we're anti-suburban snobs in this uh, pursuit for a useful walk a pursuit for a a uh, healthy lifestyle, a uh, designed city in a way that gives us an opportunity to live this healthy lifestyle, then there's there's always a place for them to continue to exist. But we're looking for a choice in this matter to have a healthy lifestyle, to have a commute pattern, uh, walk, a useful walk, a transit-oriented design. There should be enough space for both of us in, in, in this world, in I, this city. I just want my kids to have a smaller chance of dying. Mm -hmm. I live in a neighborhood where it's predominantly older folks and they all have to live in downtown Mesa because they, whether it's social security, whether it's finances that, that keep them out of living in the suburbs, um, it's not just that. It's the fact that they can walk safely about our neighborhood. They can go to the farmer's market across the street and get their produce for the week because that's what they live off of. They can have their grandkids over and let them play in the neighborhood and feel safe. Like it's literally a safe environment, not just for us anti-snobbers who are like, what, 28 to 40, like trying to raise our families alternatively and giving ourselves better options, but it's for people of all ages. It's for the kids. It's not only just for the kids, but it's also for these older folks who have no other option but to live on a budget in an apartment and some, and if they don't have a car, they need access to like farmer's markets and fresh produce, which we have now, thank God, we have these farmer's markets and the um, urban garden because we were literally living in um, food a food desert for a long time. And hopefully we'll be getting a grocery store. I was just Soon. crying a little bit because they stopped the farmer's market. I know. Was, but you can still go buy your produce from Steadfast Farms. They do delivery drop-offs. And if there's enough people in my complex, I call them and they will meet us at our area. Oh, that's awesome. Yes, or the Urban Garden. And then you can also buy produce from Morph or Republic or, you know. Yeah. So there's other options. And we live really close to a Bashes. Yeah, the Bashes is a mile and mm -hmm. Fries is a mile and a half. And these ladies like to walk. These older folks need to walk. It's kind yeah. of what keeps them going, you know. Right. One of the things that the book talks about is the obesity crisis. And I think we've been talking about that for as long as I've been alive. Oh, yeah, yeah. It almost read like a drug commercial when he like starts rambling down all the risks of obesity. It's like you know, uh, smoking. Uh, that's not going to kill you fast enough. Obesity is the answer. Now with extra life shortening power, <laughs> outperforming smoking with all that odor and taxation. No, <laughs> uh, you know, but then he just rambles down all the side effects that come with obesity. 
it's it's amazing. San Diego County does a great project. They, it's called Three Four Fifty, and it's the three life choices or things you do that cause the four most common diseases of all people in San Diego and probably true across the country that leads to 50% of the premature deaths in our country. And they are lack of physical activity, poor diet, and tobacco use. And what's the number one part about walkability? Creating activity, physical activity, that you don't even think about doing. It's exercise that happens because you like where you live. It's just an inviting walk. It's not only useful, but it's inviting. It's effortless. Mm -hmm. I think that's the biggest part, is it is effortless, because if it's enjoyable, you can walk anywhere and you don't notice. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of forcing yourself to try out a new habit and try to stick to it, it just sticks on automatically because, hey, this this works. This fits within my lifestyle. This doesn't become an additional chore that... Like most people, they have good intentions of going to the gym, but they don't end up going to the gym because why? It's not enjoyable. Like, you have but, to drive to the gym. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Exactly. They did the analysis of over 100,000 Massachusetts residents that the higher your walk score, the more fit you were. So that means that those people are sexier <laughs> and probably have better sex lives. Right. Urban planners and metrosexuals agree that suburbs make you fat, <laughs> as he quotes. So I live in a somewhat suburb, so that makes me somewhat fat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> somewhat less sexy. This is a podcast, so it doesn't matter. It's all about the voice. <laughs> is that what makes people in downtown so much prettier? The hipster look, you know what I, I think mean? think it is. That's how you fit in skinny jeans. Yeah. They were put through the compactorizer. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike all those fat people in <laughs> So that brings us to clearing the air. Hotlanta. Hotlanta? More again in Hotlanta. 1996 Olympics proves that if you bring in 2 million visitors into an area and you entice people to give up the car because they don't want to deal with all the traffic congestion that goes along with it, you can actually promote walkability. Promotes capital, right? Economic growth in areas. Yeah, so, that's absolutely. So imagine if, if if Atlanta had grown these two million people at a slower rate, in which they had the urban planners and the engineers around the table, and they were trying to do all the traffic analysis to make sure that the smooth traffic kept flowing, and these two million people could be happy in their cars. They would have done that actually, but due to the fact that the Olympics came boom overnight, and there was no way to plan for that much capacity in the, in the traffic system. We had to resort to public transit. And so that, by being kind of a pain to use the car, was the disincentive to find other ways to go about. And and while it worked even in a short campaign of the Olympics, if that had happened and sustained, then there would have been all this um, urban growth or economic development happen along those transit corridors, right? It would have been a lot more mom-and-pop shops. It would have been every, Portland. Yeah, at every bus stop. Stupid Portland. <laughs> it would have been. It's a sore spot for David. Oh, sorry. Portland sucks. I hate Portland. <laughs> Awful. We don't, we don't have to compare we to don't Portland. To. Yeah. I will say that, but what was it? One-sixth of our nation's GDP goes to healthcare, and a tenth of that is for preventable diseases caused by obesity mm-hmm. which is that's a lot of money and, and so the reason that he brought up this whole topic of the the olympics is to talk about the the ground level ozones and all that like even with too many more people in descending on atlanta and all the extra energy for all these people to get around it was actually dispersed in public transit so therefore it actually reduced the amount of ozone level Talking about ozone, bringing this back to Mesa. So our metro area is what, the sixth largest in the country? Yes. Mesa is the 35th largest city in our country-ish. Mm-hmm. And we have the 10th worst ozone in the country and the 12th worst small particulate matter, which is the worst. Those two things are combined the worst for asthma. When we used to come out here to cure our consumption, yeah. don't work that way no more. Mm-hmm. 
He says, of course, a community's auto-dependence is not the only factor that contributes to asthma, but the 2011 WND list of best and worst cities for asthma speaks to a connection between walkability and breathing easier. Statistics. So now that we've gone from depressing, we can go on to death. (laughs) Carnage. We can go full circle. Just bring it back. Bring it back. Yeah. So yeah, you were talking about dying slowly or dying yes, quickly. Abruptly. Which yeah. would you? Yeah. So, so what do you feel about carnage? Dying abruptly. Anything jump out at you in this section? Yeah, I'm all about dying abruptly versus slowly and painfully and obesity and all that kind of stuff. So uh, that means Phoenix is a great place to live. Yeah, exactly. That means the third most dangerous city. Third most dangerous metro area for dying in a car crash. Really? Um, Phoenix Metro, 9.1 deaths per per 1,000. 100,000. Oh, okay. Mesa was 8.5 per 100,000. And San Francisco was 2.5. And Portland was 3.2. Stupid Portland. Wow. Although Tampa is 16.2. So we're better than Tampa. Yeah, we are. And he mentions... All these numbers help to highlight that it's different statistics depending on where you live and how that city is designed. So, therefore, it's preventable. Exactly. So, what that means is that you are less likely to die by being hit by a car if you, or being in a car crash if you live downtown Mesa than mm-hmm. if you are if you live in Eastmark. Yeah. Well, it also helps if you work near downtown Mesa and not... Yeah, if you're commuting, you get to... That's why you... It's Mesa people who live in Mesa that drive to Phoenix that create that increase in deaths in Phoenix. So we need to bring jobs to And keep our numbers down low. I will also note that for people aged 15 to 24, if you are... There's 12.9 deaths per 100,000. So the younger you are, the more likely you are to die in a car accident as well. Car crash. Not allowed to say accident because they're not accidents. Um, and most major cities in the United States average 8.2. So both Mesa and our region are much higher than the national average for major cities. And we're designing our way, modes of transportation to get around faster and faster with the additional miles of highways constructed all the time. So this is making that uh, honoring this, the, the gods of smooth traffic, uh, all that much more uh, relevant to our choices of where we live, how we live, and how we commute. You ride your bike? Uh, no, I just walk and I take a lot of transit. Like yeah. I definitely stick to the light rail every weekend and that kind of stuff. Going out. I don't play. Yeah, we need to celebrate people like you. Yeah, I don't have an excuse. You know what's crazy too is I wear high heels everywhere I go. You know what I mean? So there's like not really a big excuse. Like if you live downtown, there's no excuse not to because it is literally so close. It's faster usually. It's literally so much faster and so much cheaper to hop on the light rail and go to downtown Phoenix or stay in Mesa or whatever. Yeah, or Mill. Or Mill. If you're into that. I've seen so many accidents like literally happen while I'm jumping on the train back home <laughs> yeah. at two o'clock in the morning i'm like wow so there's some intersection here though right that's that's why i brought up like where you work versus where you live yes. is we talked about last episode the walkability advantage for attracting millennials as the employment base exactly. and the way that intersects with attracting uh, the cool employers and you know the the employers that are really getting all the buzz and attracting all the millennials and finding their homes in these urban places. So this all intersects because if we can celebrate our urban core of Mesa and we attract that millennial uh, talent pool and we attract that employer, all of a sudden we're reducing our commutes even more than just simply living in downtown Mesa and feeling good about that connection to light rail, also shortening our distance to our commutes as well. Yeah, the part about walkability isn't just that you live somewhere walkable, it's that you live somewhere walkable and yes. walk or transit or if you have to take a short drive to work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we've talked my commute is now fifteen minutes. My commute's forty five minutes. So my commute is ten minutes. One way. Mm-hmm. One way. So we're gonna talk about how terrible that is. Well and then I also have got to just talk about 
this, the first chapter, I believe it was, where he talked about millennials and how it comes back to that and how we're ditching cars, we're using Lyft. And so we're eliminating a lot of reasons to get in the car every day. And I'm wondering if the Phoenix, the metro area, the Gilbert, the East Valley sprawl that is moving towards the suburbs is some at some point going to come to an end. And is this why we're here right now is because we know it's I didn't know intentionally that it was coming to an end until I read this book and I realized that millennials aren't going to buy homes like our parents. We're not buying cars like our parents. We're figuring out alternative work systems too. Like I was telling Ryan, I'll, I'll, I'll do something else. I won't do hair or something. I, I will not work outside of my radius. Yeah, I'm not going to sacrifice that, so I'll get crafty and work from home or do something else because I just refuse to. I don't know why, but so the lifestyle is more important it, to you. It than... literally is being healthy okay. and having convenience. Um, that sounds like a really great thing, right? Convenience and well, you, you literally you to total during a work day you have 20 minutes of commuting. Yeah versus Ryan's hour and a half. Yeah. That means that you have an hour and 10 minutes more that you can do whatever you want with than Ryan does, who's yeah. stuck in a car. And Robert Putnam says that you're more likely to be less obese than me, you're more likely to be engaged in your community than me, you're more likely to have better social connections Which and a deeper a great, social network. Exactly, that's another great thing. As the millennials, we need to get people more involved in our communities, and the only way we're going to do that is planning better around our downtown areas. And having the time to do it. And having the time to do it, exactly. And, those, and that network, that social network, also will derive more job opportunities exactly. for you. Like exactly. it's, it's the, the, the old adage is true. It's not about what you know, it's about who you know. Exactly. And so knowing people and knowing people in different industries and finding those openings, uh, you know, is a great way. And in, in the previous chapters, uh, he's mentioned, Jeff Specks mentioned that millennials will choose where they live before where they work. Yes. And then make, make it, make where they live work for them and then just find employment later. So I, that you see that's that fit, weird, yeah. yeah. You fit that mold perfectly. Yeah. We're all technically millennials here. So do we? you and Ari. Yeah. You, you know, guys totally, yeah. well, especially Ari. Yeah, we don't. She's older than me, so that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but downtowns are so unsafe, is what I hear. That's, what that's where, all the crime, that's... where all the crime is. Well, I'll tell you, David. What? You are incorrect. There are statistics to back it up, buddy. And these aren't just hand-picked statistics either. He makes sure that he notes that these are all peer-reviewed, well-controlled studies that have to do with the intersection of traffic deaths and crime deaths. So he says you are 19% less likely to die to be killed if you live in an inner city than in a suburb based solely on traffic deaths. You know what? The local news doesn't highlight this for me every night. It does not strike fear into my heart yeah. based on my commute patterns. It strikes fear into my heart based on how you're gonna <laughs> die. My neighborhood is exactly. got that. Exactly. That's scary. And he did note note in the footnotes. footnotes? <laughs> he did note in the footnotes that the the data is actually twenty years old when our crime rate was three times higher than it is now, or a murder rate. That means that not only was it 19% safer when they did these studies, but traffic deaths have actually gone up, especially this past six months. But we also know that murder rates have gone down significantly in that time. So maybe that 19% is, if murder rates went down three times, that means that that 19% may be up to 60% safer if you live in a walkable community. He also says that they found that those living in more walkable neighborhoods trusted their neighbor, their neighbors more, participated in community projects, clubs, and volunteering more. Why is that? Why do you think that? Time. Yeah, of course. And then you have a more of a variety of people living mm -hmm. in one com community. Like in suburbs, I don't know what it's like. So I can't tell you, you but you your car like who your is living in these suburbs that the crime is so high? Like that's what I'm curious. Uh, other than just the well, the car crime's not necessarily higher. The deaths, but your chance of dying. I got it. 
combined is, is higher. Yeah, it's the combined factor. Your risk factors of both commute plus crime are higher than the commute plus crime of the inner cities or suburbs or what have you, or the uh, inner uh, more urban places. Yes. While there's there may be a slight uptick in crime statistics in urban centers, you reduce your overall risk factor based on the fact that you're not dying behind the wheel. Yeah, you're okay. less you're less likely to die, but you might have more crime depending on where you are. You know, this is averaging for cities like Detroit, New York, and big cities that might have higher crime, but still it holds true that you're more likely to die if you. More. Well, to answer your question, I just think that people trust their neighborhoods more, their neighbors more, because they're actually outside. Building those Building relationships. Those relationships, yeah. So I wonder if this is a selection bias here. So people who want a diverse lifestyle or want the diversity of their community, who want those social connections, are choosing to live in the urban spaces. Right? But that's a choice that should be available to them. That's my argument. Mm -hmm. And so regardless of there, if there's a selection bias happening here, you want these people who deserve that opportunity to exercise the, this liberty of, you know, this is America, we're allowed, we're supposed to have freedom of choice and all this kind of stuff. So why not have an environment that is conducive to the lifestyle that you want to live? Well, and if you want to be engaged with a diverse community, mm -hmm. my God, that, that opportunity should be available to you. But if you just want to stay home and watch Jessica Jones, it doesn't matter where you live. Yeah, yeah it really doesn't. I mean, it is it is convenient if you like to be live near amenities like wilderness and things like that. Although a lot of friends that I have that move to live near the desert uh, had the desert move away from them yes. with each subsequent housing development yeah. of people thinking just like them. Yeah, Jane Jacobs talks a lot about building relationships and wanting better community and that by walking and running into someone and waving and saying hi or seeing someone at the bar, even if they're not a friend or someone that you can go and trust necessarily, knowing that person every day and having that familiarity alone creates a better relationship because you can go, hey, I see you every day. I've never met you. Can you help me change my tired a little off topic did you know that my neighborhood um it's like surrounded by rehab facilities mm -hmm. for recovering addiction specialists and stuff yeah and i had no idea mm -hmm. literally i had no idea for i i think amy and dave told mm -hmm. me about it and i was laughing so hard because i finally understood what people were saying when they would say Oh, you live in downtown Mesa? Isn't that a little dangerous? Like, I could not understand what people were talking about. And then Amy and they were like, oh, girl, it's because you live, like, literally in smack dab in the middle of all these facilities. But because we see them all the time, we have our neighborhood little watching. Like, these older folks, I mean, they're funny. Like, they have not a lot going on, but to be outside with their little dogs and stuff like that, that they keep the neighborhood in check. And yeah, I've never seen anyone get out of control. I've never seen any threats. Well, and most of the time, if you're in a rehab facility, you're not there because you're like chained to something. You're there because you want to improve your life. Exactly. You're recovered. You're recovering, you know, so. Which is way better than most people I know that aren't improving their life. Yeah. So it's, it's very odd to me when people make that assumption. I would rather have the person who's living in the group home with the support yes. and with the commitment to getting better than the person that's in denial and in isolation living on their own. And I kind of love that I live next to all these rehab facilities because in some ways it keeps my rent down. <laughs> like, no one's trying to move over to my complex and I had no idea. This is anti-gentrification. Uh, um, that is me do, so in a nutshell. Are you, I'm so anti. Are you familiar with... Uh, uh, Grand Avenue, downtown Phoenix. Yes. So um, one of the, the leaders of Grand Avenue, Beatrice, and she has the idea that you need just enough prostitutes and meth heads to keep the developers out. You do. And uh, that's because she got kicked out. She has, this is third or fourth location. There's a New Times article about this, but her third or fourth location in the last 30 years and she got kicked out of her first location because they put in the basketball arena downtown Phoenix. She moved to 
the warehouse district, and she got kicked out of that because they're building the baseball arena. And so she moved to Grand Avenue where they have giant rehab facilities. Yeah. Huge. Nothing like we have in downtown. No. So. I don't even think you need prostitutes and meth heads. All you need to do is dedicate five hours of your weekend to go out and panhandle. <laughs> and you will keep <laughs> all those who will, you know, likely give you twice the much, twice the money that you spent on your home just a year ago, and you tried to flip your house. Which is why I get into fights with a lot of people about downtown Mesa. The argument being that we are trying to build Mesa up, and a lot of people are trying to, a lot of. People, millennials, want to kick out the religious factor because downtown Mesa is very unique in that we have the Mormon temple. Mm -hmm. And I think they want it to just become fully, fully, I mean, just fully embrace this like millennial hipster culture. I think they, a lot of people just really want downtown Mesa to grow already because they're tired of waiting. Mm -hmm. But in my eyes, I feel like we need to do it slowly because I don't want to kick out the Mormon factor because that conservatism. Uh, maintains a sense of security and that anti-gentrification as, as well as kicking out these like lower income neighborhoods the like Horn and Stapley mm -hmm. a lot of people can argue that those are lower income neighborhoods but they are <laughs> yeah. and um, yeah I don't want to get rid of those either we don't want to get rid of the conservatives like I want Mesa to stay weird I want it to stay true well, downtown Mesa. and I think you're absolutely right because I community dies really, really quickly when it becomes monolithic. Yes. Um, I think about Roosevelt Row. That is the most depressing. And it's going to be nothing but $1,600 a month rent in that area. And where, I mean, 1600 bucks a month in rent is a lot for most people that work normal jobs. The majority of Americans. I don't want to blame people who have money who are looking for this lifestyle. Like, the reason that these rents are skyrocketing is because they don't have enough choices elsewhere. Like, there's a huge pent-up demand for walkable neighborhoods. And if we just expanded the number of places that people could land, the rent would control itself to a to a large degree. Like, yeah. There's a supply and demand argument to be made here, I think. But I think it's also making sure that we have a mix. I'm not against $1,700 a month rent. Good. I mean, people want that. People want luxury or people want just a higher standard. And other people are looking at just trying to pay rent. Yeah. Sure. And, and, I'm, and I'm totally on board with the incrementalism uh, argument that was made, too, that we don't want to do away with the neighborhoods that we have, that we want to preserve. There's good arguments to preserve that. And, uh, you know, the, I think that our form-based code that we have in Mesa is a, is a great tool to help make that happen because it concentrates that redevelopment directly on Maine where we don't currently have a whole lot of housing opportunities yeah. and so if we can redevelop that main street to be the, the commercial bottom floor and the residential upper floor we get to a mix of housing that we currently don't have in the area it will only provide diversity it will only provide diversity of choice and more options so I think that the farm-based code is a great tool to help implement uh, where we want to preserve the, the character that currently exists and incentivize the going up and, and uh, densification and uh, maybe what ends up being the $1,600 rent apartment. I think we're not utilizing off of Main Street as well, which was, I'm just glad to see Amy move off of Main Street and Lulubel Toy Bodega because, <laughs> paid advertisements, um, because those areas definitely need some commercial property too so that we can build equally around that. Well, and downtown is such a long, it's like a string of pearls, yes. and it's not truly walkable yet because north and south, it dies off very quickly. It's definitely not. You look at, like, Main Street Tour, Stapley, if you will, there's a lot of old, empty, empty, nasty, broken-down spaces that need some love. <laughs> and once that gets going all the way down to Gilbert, it could be that ideal Roosevelt, and it's way better than Roosevelt because it's literally one strip. Yeah. I mean, it's prime. There's enough 
for for everyone to get some, you know. Well, and one of the other things that we need, in my opinion, is a density of people. We need more people yeah. to support our businesses, support our restaurants, support our breweries, support our transit support our transit and that comes around i mean it needs to happen around the light rail stations and we need more people to support our businesses and so we're in an ideal place where we have huge amounts of just literally empty lots or dilapidated places that have outused all utility that create that interest and can bring more people to support our community i can chart this out like it comes in quantity not quality and or you know the people who will argue for that we just need a few more uh wealthy individuals to move into this uh, are, are the, those are just a few people who have disposable income if you take a few pe- 10 people with disposable income and replace it with a hundred people who have less disposable income you just you can graph it out it becomes an integral equation if you've ever taken calculus where you just look at the amount of uh, resources underneath the curve and trust me the math works out you have a lot more uh, economic um, power behind 10 people or 100 people with ten dollars to spend than 10 people with forty dollars to spend it's really socialist to look at it because if you do look at it like look at la brea um which is like parallel to hollywood boulevard in california hollywood's like really nice shiny fancy right um handful of like the 10 people mm-hmm. just invested in it and that's where they get their money from and then look at la brea the history and then all these buildings are just like stacked up on top of each other and they're little little barber shops next to little little restaurants but there are so many more restaurants and there are so many more of these spaces everyone is making money well and it's, and it's it, affordable it's absolutely untrue that people poor people or people that don't make high wages don't spend money they actually spend a higher percentage of their income it's, it's just, just spent in different ways it's usually spent in restaurants it's spent more you know quality of life kind of things you know here and there and there mm-hmm. but I don't know, 10 people making $40,000 a year probably spend more money in an area than one person making 60. Yeah. And they don't have the luxury necessarily to say it's a socket away. Like if you're making 80,000 versus 40,000, your disposable income is much bigger, but you don't have to dispose of that income. You can save it. And then that's just money on the sidelines and not necessarily generating any economic uh, uh, stimulus within the community. What's going to keep people coming down to downtown Mesa is going to be 20 small businesses versus five large businesses. Though so that gets old really fast. Yeah. And do you know how many, I mean, little storefronts there can be if we made it more affordable to the everyday person? It would bring so many more people down. I had a girl drop me off um, from work the other day, and she was like, Okay, where can I get gas around here? I was like, oh, it's just one block up on center. She's like, cool. Where can we get a coffee here? And I was like, just one block south on center. She's like, where can we do this? Just over here. Like the print shop is right here, you know? She was like, geez, it's so accessible down here. And I'm like, yeah, everything is more accessible. So if we just had 20 more of these small businesses, that is what's going to bring people to see how easy it can be to live in downtown Mesa, not five large businesses that. I think you get bored of, or you're still going to always need more. You just need more options. And we need the people to support those businesses. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you talk about choice and quality of place, if I can go like Pastino's, I could probably name four or five different places I could go and go to a Pastino's. It's practically an Applebee's now. That that hurts. hurts. (laughs) That's not true. (laughs) But... I don't want another Pastinos. I know where Pastinos is. I know where exactly. four Pastinos are. Exactly. But I know where Queens is, and I know where Owen Island is. I know where Blue Adobe is. I know where Republican Empanada is. Uh, yeah, they know you by name too. George's. Yeah. George's. <laughs> George's. Yeah. Um, you can't. You can't get baklava anywhere. Right. Anywhere in Mesa. Mm-hmm. That's pretty unique. I know people who go to from Gilbert to come up to Mesa for that. We don't need any more. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and there's plenty of space for more. Like, there's probably there's such an overabundance of parking in downtown Mesa that could easily Beautiful. easily repl- be replaced by more shops and more little mom and pops that provide that diversity that you're looking for that you think is the, the one thing that's just keeping Mesa from really taking off. Do we want to get back to it? I wanted to... <laughs> I thought that was really cool. Um, the opening? What is it? The opening of why Johnny can't walk. When he said that the main arguments for building walkable cities back in the 70s and stuff was principally aesthetic and social. Yeah, that this is the direct. It's pretty. That is exactly what I think about downtown Mesa, is it's pretty. And I know it sounds silly to just move somewhere just because solely it's pretty, but that's just the kind of environment I thrive in. And that's when I moved to downtown Mesa and I started working for Lindsay and like small spaces. I just, I couldn't see myself working anywhere else just because every day my walk to work was inspirational. The architecture, the little city buildings and stuff like that alone wanted me to stay in Mesa. So I think that says a lot more. not something you can experience somewhere else. It's Mm -hmm. not like every other strip mall or I work in one. Mall, right? It's awful. It, where are you? That could, it could be exactly the same as oh, somewhere in totally Houston or Atlanta or wherever. Glanville, USA. There's literally 1,200 of them. And they went up quick without much thought, without mm-hmm. much design, without much uh, consideration for the, the pedestrian. It was the 55 miles per hour architecture, throw There's a box out there and call it good. There was a lot of design once and then rubber stamped across the country Um, i will say that not only is downtown mesa pretty but what we learned was that you're less likely to die because you're more like yeah yeah (laughs) it's it's safer you're going to be healthier i mean you are the skinniest one here only because you live downtown mesa um and you're you know your neighbors so you're more civically engaged that means that you live in a more resilient community it just stands up. There's just more and more things that keep going. So now we, we're at the wrong color green. Before we get there, I'd like to, to bring in the Bogota, Colombia, former mayor quote that I know that. You, so we brought we brought in this guy into conversations. Well, this in is his previous episode. I talk about oh, Gil Peñuelas okay. a lot. Okay, Enrique. Uh, he says, God made us walking animals, pedestrians. As a fish needs to swim, a bird needs to fly, a deer needs to run, we need to walk, not in order to survive, but to be happy. I mean, so he talks about how succinct and beautiful that little phrase is, but it's just what makes it, it makes us happy and healthy and easy to get around and find our way. And so that's, that's pretty. It's simple. Life is just simple. It's as simple as just wanting to live in a pretty area, you know? I do feel happier when I go for a long walk, like even just a walk to clear your thoughts. And, you know, you think about now there's all these TED Talks and such about how important it is to unplug for a minute and go for a walk or, you know, it helps you think. It literally helps you think to exercise, even if it's just a walk, without being plugged into something. And it, it feels wonderful. Look at that. We're at the point in our society where we have to talk about how good it is to walk somewhere. Yeah. Without a computer on our isn't, hand. Isn't it lovely? Try it sometime. On the wrong color green, I actually, I mean, it's so, we've heard all of this so many times that we are damaging our environment with how much we drive and how much we build cars. It's not just the cost of the car. It's not just the gas that comes out of the car. It's also the the energy that goes into the car to build it. You know, mm-hmm. the, the upfront, sunk, your sunk carbon costs. Mm-hmm. But the thing that got me that I didn't realize, we're talking about the electric car and how much cheaper it is to operate and how much gas it saves, but how much more people drive it because it is cheaper to operate. And that, that was stunning because the idea is like, well, that means that you are more likely to die. The more you drive your car, the less likely you are to survive, which that's a terrible thing to say. About but dying happy. Dying happy, yeah. Literally. You know? And 
this book is already a little bit out of date because while he talks about electric cars, he doesn't talk about autonomous cars all that much. And that's in the in the more recent years, that's been the the added uh, layer to the conversation of like, oh, want to be a panacea when we don't actually have to drive anymore. We'll be able to jump on our laptops and start on our work uh, day, you know, during our commute. But there's the other side of that coin where if that encourages more people to live further out in the sticks and have long commutes that's just additional uh, drive time that's going to clog up our roads and especially here in phoenix where one of our biggest contributors to air pollution is particulate matter that's just going to be tires spinning up dirt that's collecting on the road and that big those big particulates is what attributes to a lot of our asthma and it doesn't decrease the number of doesn't decrease traffic to have autonomous cars it doesn't decrease traffic to get an uber or a lyft it's still traffic it just happens that you have a driver or a computer driver so you know we're continuing with the use of our environmental resources our natural resources in inefficient ways we're not being good stewards of our planet I had to laugh when Joseph, when Jefferson, when he quoted uh, Jefferson and talking about, oh, the worst thing that happened was the byproduct was fertilizer because horses. Mm. And uh, when I was little growing up, um, I grew up in a fairly small town. And so it wasn't really strange that the, we had the mayor over for dinner one night. But uh, he was talking about when he was a kid, the garbage man wrote, had the garbage cans on the back of their horse-drawn carriage mm. and they just they swept up the pollution of the horse when they're sweeping up the trash oh, anyway and it's just funny to think about that it's like you know we have big street sweepers now and we have big trucks that do that but is it actually that much better is it more efficient is it you know what are we providing out of that 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 always comes to my mind and it, you know it sounds old fogey like but <laughs> <laughs> Joel's looking at me like, I understand, small town yeah. kid. It's true, we have the environmental restoration guys in Ajo for a long time, fixing old pipes and stuff like that. And it was weird because they all came from the Dakotas. All these guys, these construction oh, yeah. workers, like just all came from like up north where there was like water. And they were spraying the, after they had worked on the roads, they would like clean it up. But Ajo is windy, like all the time. And they would like spray the sand down when they were done. And we enough people complained about wasting water. And they just could not understand like why we were saying that. I was like, dude, we're in the desert. We don't have time to be spraying down the streets. Like that is so weird. I mean, it's counter. Yeah. It's like my, my favorite is watching a guy out with the gas mower or gas blower blowing like some yeah. leaves and i'm like if you had a broom you would be done faster and i wouldn't be mm -hmm. smelling that yeah. awful two-stroke engine and waking up like that early in the morning Ray. to hear that yeah use a rake it's less work it's weird and sometimes they're like trying so hard to get it off of the rocks and spending like minutes and i'm like it's like lean down and pick it up i feel like we're living in a backwards world it's but it's so uncool to use a rake I guess so. More power. Yeah, he called it gizmo green. I know it as greenwashing, where you say something's green. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, if you use this one new tool, you become healthier, and it's a greener. It's it's better for the environment. It's better for the environment if you don't buy a new tool. Yes. Yeah. The the this comes from the idea that technology can save us, right? So there's a lot to be said for just trying to take a minimalist approach to some of the solutions, the easier approach to the solutions, not trying to fix everything with a new gadget. But yeah, he talks about green buildings and, you know, they're actually, Jane Jacobs 50 years ago mentioned that the greenest building is an old building, mm -hmm. but um, there was just actually the Preservation Green Lab from the National Trust for Historic Preservation just came out with a study of um, Tucson where they looked and the buildings that are older than 50 years in Tucson actually provide more money towards sales taxes and more per per square foot than anywhere else in the city because older cheaper older older buildings cheaper rent more dense 
and it provides... Let's just talk about, I grew up in Tucson, because Tucson is close to Ajo, too. And so whenever we had, and we're in Tucson's Pima County. Close to Pima County. We're <laughs> Pima County. So this is Maricopa County. So whenever we needed, like, stuff done, like, it was, it's, a, it was, it a was city, the yeah. big city. So we would go to Tucson. And you're absolutely right. Um, over there, homes are made like they were, I mean, just back in the day. They're old, you know, and they were made out of adobe. And any home mm -hmm. in Tucson you walk into is so much cooler. Like, you walked in, and it, it just feels like there's a draft going through. Like, it's pretty amazing. And I totally agree. I think we tend to throw away more than we need to instead of just upcycling, reusing, getting, um, buying used we just buy a lot of new, new, new. And that's kind of what I have beef with with Phoenix the most, is we don't just make use of older buildings. and. Yeah, we have a throwaway culture in a lot of ways, not just about getting plastic bags or mm -hmm. replacing something rather than repairing it, but we have throwaway architecture. Mm -hmm. We Not as bad as Japan. <laughs> oh, that's probably off topic. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, the J Japanese have this uh, like twenty-year uh, thing with the buildings where they erect something for twenty years and it's demolished and then they come back. The probably the best part about that, their culture though is that it tends to urbanize really fast as as those as their cities are growing. So rather, their cities than, aren't growing. Their country is shrinking. But their urban centers are growing. Oh. Mm -hmm. So it's the in-migration, right? So it's it's this, it's this worldwide thing where people are migrating to cities. And so uh, the throwaway architecture is working to where it goes from one dwelling unit for 20 years to four dwelling units for 20 years. Then it becomes 16 units. And so it's densifying. And so the throwaway is kind of working in for the, to their advantage. But our architecture is a lot different than their architecture. Yeah, and so we can sure. preserve a lot of our architecture in a way to where we add on to it and we use an adaptive reuse mm -hmm. type of strategy rather than the throwaway. I, I want to point out down at down in the Fiesta District over uh, by Fiesta Mall, there were like four buildings that were yeah. maybe 10 years old, maybe 15. Yeah. They were way newer than the mall. Yep. And every single one of them got torn down and built, rebuilt as a new, slightly different building. Seriously, rest in peace, Fiesta District. That's like crazy. I'm so sad to see what they're going to do with them all. It may go through a rebirth. I've, well, I think it will, but yeah. not without throwing away old buildings, which were totally reusable. Yeah, and over so um, weird. Stapley, just south of the US 60, there was, yes. I don't remember what it was, it was some, some restaurant and one out of business. And it was a big restaurant. It was a big chain restaurant, probably a three, four thousand square foot building. They tore it down and they built a brand new building that was probably three or four thousand square foot that is in the Mellow Mushroom brand architecture. <laughs> and I was like, couldn't you just rehab the building? Mellow Mushroom is small too. That really surprises me. That they tore that down. That they would be so, I mean, just destructive about the whole situation. And I don't know if it was just no one thought that through or they're like, but Rather than try and fix it, we can just tear it down, send it to the landfill. But Gilbert does building. that a lot, and that's Gilbert territory. Yeah, it just Gilbert really does do that way too much. But they don't have any old buildings. That's a thing. Even downtown Gilbert, it's not old. Well, some of it's old, and they kept it. I think. Yeah. For the most part. Well, a lot of it is fake. fake that's what I mean. That's, that's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. So, that's why I say them... when it is old, it's not as old as like downtown mesa yeah, stuff but i'll still take disneyland old over some of this like ch cheap like new uh um, aren't we quirky and new and, yeah, yeah. and new edge and mm -hmm. hip and you know but absolutely hate that. Be, uh, I, don't, I don't like the disneyland stuff yeah it, it is just a facade it's but, funny because we went to snooze but it's pretty it's true off topic sorry we went to snooze and i hate places like that Ugh. I was like, great, this is the breakfast chilies version, you know? I was so upset my boyfriend wanted to do our little celebration there. But we go, and I literally had the best food of my life. And I was, like, so <laughs> mad that I liked it the whole time. I was just being shitty to all the waitresses, you know? I was just like, whatever. But it's not, it's just because I can't wrap my head around it. I'd rather go to a hole in the wall and get horrible service, <laughs> you know, than eat at one of these like quirky new edge type of fake 
Well, I don't want to go spend an hour in line for that either. That's what we did. I'd rather go to Harlow's. We did. We spent literally 40 minutes in a waiting area. It was pretty awful. And the food's good. It was awesome. And the drinks are really good. Oh, it was amazing. (laughs) And they're really creative about their branding. They are. And I'm a sucker for good marketing. So Mm -hmm. that's where they got me. And I was like, okay. Yeah, the 70s kids. Yeah, no, I mean, it's fun. And they're out of Colorado, right? Yeah, that's where they're from. Or, yeah, because they did a lot of the New Mexico-style food, which still yeah. Colorado is a part of. Well, and, you know, it's like Postinos. They don't have bad food. It's, no. it's good. And I love being able to drink their wine. It's just it's something I can get anywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's replaceable. And, like, Republica Empanada is not replaceable. And... I know the owners, I know the servers, I know. you know, I know the cooks Yep. and, and that doesn't have, I mean, I, okay. I've probably been there more than a couple dozen times, but, but I mean, how many times well, have they, you been to a subway? That subway on Maine? Yeah. They never knew who I was and they I would go to them are. once a week and then I quit for a long time and I haven't been back. But the second time we went to Republica, they knew who I was. The third time we went back, you were friends. It was like we're a family at that point. It was amazing. Yeah, and that's something that I don't think the brand or the the chain mentality, even if it's a small chain, can really hold on to. And and again, like you can't You're can't right. say bad things about really good food. You can't. It's like Ulta where I work. It's full of. Um, my clients who came with me, they're stuck. And the people who have come to me since I've started working at Ulta, if I leave, they won't follow me because they're addicted to the brand now. Like, I'm selling a brand, and they're not going to follow me because they are they like what Ulta offers. It's not what I offer. And yeah. So I have to remember that sometimes when I think about leaving or, <laughs> you know, I dream of different. Good food and good beer, I think, is going to help uh, bring Mesa where we want it we all want it we have a lot of good beer and we have a lot of good food i know that's your biggest pet peeve one people oh i'm I'm not saying that we don't have it i'm saying that it is is. as long as we can maintain it we need help we need to help the community out we need to help them from themselves let's be real because and 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 these places aren't attracting much of a list you know so so while they are the, the the unknown gems that exist um we need we need more people close by to take advantage of them to where they can have take that walkable date night that i love to talk about yeah i mean ari ari and i just last saturday we went to a comedy night at queens Mm -hmm. and had a couple beers and listened to some emerging comics and we had a great time and that's every saturday night at Queen's Pizzeria. <laughs> One thing that does aggravate me to no end, though, is coming from a small town, everyone thinks that they can slide. You know, if it if your business hours are from 8 to 7, you need to stay open from 8 to 7. Yeah. If you get an extra 1000 that month from whether it's the sports going on at whatever the, mm-hmm. the Riverview is or whatever this extra income comes from, you have to put it back into marketing. Like, I worth is really, really running the game down there because of that they're really putting back into their business Volstead really puts into their business too yeah no that's that is important that the marketing is not something you can do once it's something you have to keep up i mean mcdonald's keeps advertising Mm -hmm. um, probably because they have to but i mean think about all the big giant national brands that keep advertising even though you don't think that they have to. I think they need professional help downtown. We need more planners. We need better, we just need more grants. We need more artists to do that. We need a lot more. So I just saw this going around. There are less planners working at the city of Mesa, which has a population of nearly a half million than there are in Gilbert and Chandler combined. Oh, hands down. What? And the morale in that department's probably not so good. Yeah. Because they don't get to do long-range planning, and they're just keeping up with current demand. Right. Yeah, treading water. 
and while planners can be useful or instrumental in this sort of stuff, uh, they have to subscribe to Jeff Speck's ideas about uh, what's in this book, and because not all of them have. <laughs> and the whole concept of healthy city or healthy impact analysis to take stock of what the built environment's doing to our uh, personal health and health outcomes, uh, not every planner is into that. Some are stuck in the old paradigm, like planning is thing, making things beautiful or being the economic engine that creates prosperity and growth. And some planners need to buy into this health impact stuff too to really make it work. Right. I will mention that it was planners that got us into this mess and engineers. Because that changed. Like yeah. what he said from the 60s and 70s to now, it's well, completely it in, different, you know? It was in the 60s and 70s that we made these choices. Yeah. So starting in the 50s, we stopped making great communities. And it took it takes a long time to get where we are. Mm-hmm. But it took a hell of a lot of money and a hell of a lot of effort and smart people to get us to the point where we are now, where we're like, oh, oh, wait, we really do need to fix this. And we just spent billions of dollars doing the wrong thing. And we can't think that we now have it all figured out either. Like, we have to be incremental yeah. about things. I love the Strong Towns message about incrementalism. It's about uh, not being too bold and making uh, these huge, big moves that... Um, completely transplant the city. Uh, be incremental about it, you know? You want to respect the fabric of what predates all this mess and and things like that. That makes our communities more resilient, too, because big plans, if they fail, fail bigly. Yeah, the harder, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Exactly. So that's all that we have for today. Join us online on Facebook or Tumblr at Main Street Mesa. Email your comments to mainstmesa at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you find your podcast. We want to give a huge thank you to Joel for being with us. Thank you. Do you have any uh, Twitters or anything you want to give a shout out for? I don't, you know, no. I have my business page if you want to add me. I'm at Desert Jewel on Instagram. Uh, make sure you join us next week where we're going to be. And uh, I think we should have a pretty exciting uh, guest next week, too, or next month, or whenever we get around to this, because, you know, that's who we are. <laughs> <laughs> Each 10 additional minutes in daily commuting time cuts involvement in community affairs by 10%. Fewer public meetings attended, fewer committees chaired, fewer petitions signed, fewer church services attended, and so on. Our theme music is written by Philip Buckman, performed by the Sweaty Palm Trees, and produced and reported by David Wirsch. Peace.